0: We're going to make it this morning, I promise. (laughs) All right, I'll invite you to turn with me to turn with me to John chapter 3 this morning as we close out this incredible chapter. It's an incredible chapter. You know, back in the first week of our study in the Gospel of John, we were introduced to the Word who was God, but we were also introduced to a man named John the Baptist. He's a fascinating character. In Mark, it describes John as wearing clothing made out of camel hair, and his diet consisted of locust and wild honey. He appears almost as if out of nowhere, preaching in the desert, calling people to repent and be baptized, and people are flocking to him by the droves. He's a fascinating person. He is the last of the Old Testament prophets, and on top of that, Jesus described John the Baptist as being the greatest born among women. So according to Jesus, there's no one greater than John the Baptist, but he's kind of like a shooting star. As soon as he appears, he's gone. His ministry is incredibly focused, but brief. And here at the end of chapter three, we have one last mention of him um, in this gospel, And John the Baptist provides a very clear contrast in this chapter with the man who was mentioned earlier in the chapter, Nicodemus. Remember, the Bible is the inerrant word of God. We believe God, through His Holy Spirit, divinely inspired men as they wrote to write down exactly what God wanted to communicate, while at the same time using their own personal styles and and personality. And there's nothing in God's word that's there by accident. There's no extra words that that we don't need. It's all there on purpose. God has chosen to reveal everything we need to know about him and everything we need to know about how to live a life pleasing to him according to his word. And so every word in there is vital and purposeful to our lives. And so it's no accident that as John wrote his gospel that the characters of Nicodemus and John the Baptist are placed so closely together in this chapter. And though you could think of both of them as being religious leaders, um, you could really not pick two people that are more different to put side by side. Nicodemus had risen up through the ranks of Jewish society and religious life in order to become one of the most powerful and influential and wealthy people in the Jewish world. He operated out of the center of power, the temple in Jerusalem, and he was at the top of the food chain. He was as high up as you get. And on the other hand, you have John the Baptist. He lived in complete obscurity for nearly 30 years before showing up on the scene. He lives like a wild man in the desert, and he claims no titles of authority or power. He only claims to be preparing the way for someone greater who is coming. And then remember how Nicodemus responds to Jesus. Even though he's one of the most educated of the religious elites he can't understand even the basics of the kingdom that Jesus introduces him to though he's Israel's teacher he doesn't even understand the beginning of following Jesus Christ his pride is a hindrance to him understanding and his conversation with Jesus ends with him still stuck on stuck on the question how can this be he doesn't get it but in contrast in today's passage we'll see a very different response and attitude from John the Baptist and it's a model that we would do well to follow in our own lives. So let's go ahead and check out the setting for today's passage in John 3, 22. In verse 22, it says this, "'After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, "'and he remained there with them and was baptizing. "'John also was baptized at Anon near Salim, "'because water was plentiful there, "'and people were coming and being baptized.' For John had not yet been put in prison, so after the Passover, Jesus and his disciples they leave Jerusalem. They go out into the Judean countryside, and Jesus was out there apparently teaching and baptizing people. Now, in the next chapter in John four two, it'll clarify that Jesus himself actually didn't baptize anybody. It was his disciples who were baptizing under his authority and in his name. But we also find that John the Baptist was still baptizing people as well. This was still very early on in Jesus' public ministry. I mean, just the, this, the fact that probably only a few weeks or a month or so has passed since the water was turned to wine. This is very early on in his ministry. And at the same time, John still had people coming to him because he was much more famous at the time. Still coming to him and he was baptizing them, symbolizing repentance of their sins. So there's some overlap in, the, in their timeline of Jesus' ministry and John the Baptist. And we know from the other gospel accounts that John would eventually be thrown in prison and soon after that executed. So this happens prior to that. You have Jesus and his disciples baptizing people. And at the same time, you have John and his disciples still baptizing people. And this is where some tension develops. In verse 25, it says this, Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. Purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. So you have some of John the Baptist's disciples having a conversation with a Jew, presumably someone from the Pharisees or the religious group. And they're talking about purification. And that's all we really know about their discussion. But Apparently, it left John's disciples maybe flustered, a little confused, or upset, because when they return to John, they start pointing the finger at Jesus. And they say, teacher, remember that guy who you declared was the Lamb of God? Well, he's baptizing people, and now everyone is going to him. And you can tell in the way that they talk that they think this is a serious problem. That all of a sudden, there's some competition on the block now. And we do this same thing when we're loyal to somebody or something. When we're passionate and loyal to something, we tend to jump to defend it even when it's not actually being attacked. Um, We do it in sports all the time. If someone in here was to say War Eagle, then naturally half the people in here would respond with Roll Tide. (laughs) Even though you're not being attacked, you just feel like, oh, I got to jump up and defend myself. Um, And that's what we do and we do it with other things too Whether it's truck brands or coke or pepsi or favorite athlete your favorite singer favorite actress or actor When we're loyal or passionate about something we tend to make it a competition even when there is none Because we want it to get all the glory And in their loyalty these disciples were feeling threatened Just put yourself in their shoes for a moment um, they were disciples of John, the first prophet in nearly 400 years. He has droves of people traveling out into the wilderness just to hear him preach. And people are repenting and being baptized. He's having an extremely fruitful ministry. Everyone throughout Israel would have been talking about this guy, John the Baptist. And right when it seems like things are at their peak, all of a sudden it starts to go downhill. All of a sudden there's this other guy who's baptizing like John, and on top of it, this other guy can do miracles. And now, everyone isn't actually going to Jesus, not everyone, but that's what they say. They say, all are going to him. In their distress, they're exaggerating. They think the world is coming to an end. You see, these disciples are jealous for their master, but they're actually jealous for the wrong person. They have unnecessarily turned this ministry into a competition. But what is striking is John the Baptist's response. In verse 27, it says, John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom, and the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. What an incredible display of humility. And John can say this because he realizes two things. He realizes the source of his purpose and the source of his joy. The source of his purpose and the source of his joy. He says a person cannot receive one thing unless it is given to him from heaven or from above. John knows that any authority or influence that he had came from only one place, God. It wasn't anything he earned or generated by himself. He knew everything that he had was given by God and that God gives us exactly what we need to fulfill our purpose in life. And what is our purpose? Our ultimate purpose is to bring glory to God. And the truth is that God has given you everything you need to do that. But the question is, are you willing to give him all the glory? Do you want God to get all the glory? Or do you secretly want to save some for yourself? Do you want God to get all the recognition for anything you've achieved or been able to do? Or do you really want to keep some of the credit for yourself? This was a struggle for John's disciples. And it sounds really bad, but it's actually really human for us to do. And almost all of us struggle with this from time to time. We even do it with church a lot. Pastor J.D. Greer, the current president of the Southern Baptist Convention, he likes to pose the question that what if God chose to bless A different church other than yours you know we pray for revival and for God to change our city and to to raise up people left and right but the question is what if God chose to do that through a different church rather than us what if revival broke out at the Methodist Church behind us or at the Church of God down the street or at any of the other dozen churches within five or ten minutes of where we're at Would we be jealous because we don't get any of the glory of that? Or would we rejoice in the fact that God is being glorified no matter what? And he's being glorified through them. You see, John didn't flinch for one moment because he knew the source of his purpose and it came straight from God. And he tells them, I already told you I'm not the Christ, I'm not him. You mean everyone's starting to go follow Jesus? Good. That's the point. That was the mission. That was the whole purpose. He needs to get 100% of the glory, and I need to get none. And John meant it so much so that he said, he must increase and I must decrease. You know, there's almost a tragic shortness to John's ministry. When we see someone rise to fame and then fall so rapidly, it's sad. But John knew what he came to do, and he accomplished it. And I know it sounds counterintuitive to apply to our lives, but how can we do this same thing in our lives? How can we decrease so Christ can increase? The question can sound strange, but how can you make your life less about you and more about Jesus? Paul tells us in, tells the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 2-2 that he chose to know nothing among them except Christ and him crucified. You know, Paul had a ton of things that he could have boasted in. Before his conversion, he was a prodigy among the religious elite. He was one of the most educated and passionate Jews. He had been taught by one of the most well-respected and revered teachers. He was an impressive man. But yet he says he chose to display only Christ and him crucified to the Corinthians. He wanted Jesus to be the center of the attention. He wanted God to get all the glory in everything he did. And so how can we do that? One way is to deny ourselves, like Jesus commands his disciples to in Matthew 16. That's certainly a denial of our sinful, fleshly inclinations, but it's also dying to our preferences and our desire to have things our way and the way we want it. Another way is to make decisions based on God's glory. You come to a fork in the road in life and you have multiple good decisions. Maybe not a bad and good one, but maybe multiple good ones. You know, the world makes decisions based on what will make you the most money or what will make you happiest. But what if you made those kind of decisions based on what would bring God the most glory? So, when you come to deciding, do I go to school here or there? What would bring God the most glory? Do I take this job or this job? What would bring God the most glory? What decision would lift up Christ higher? And that is a sign of a mature believer, someone who's grown in sanctification when they begin to prioritize Christ in his name above all else. And that's what John the Baptist was doing. John knew the source of his purpose, but he also knew the source of his joy. And he uses this analogy of a groom and the best man. Who is more important in the wedding, the groom or the best man? The groom. Definitely the groom. The best man is not the focus of the wedding. And if he is, then something has gone terribly wrong. Either he's made it about himself or he locked his legs and passed out and everyone's looking at him on the floor. The best man should not be the center of attention. It's the groom. The best man is there to support his groom and and he's there to make sure everything is accounted for and that the groom is ready and prepared to meet his bride. And the best man's joy is found in The groom that he supports. And John is calling himself the best man. And he's rejoicing in the groom, Jesus. And then he says, therefore, this joy of mine is complete. That's just like Paul saying, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race and kept the faith. It's mission complete. John's source of joy was in completing his mission of bringing glory to God by pointing people to Jesus. And the truth is that there should be a profound sense of joy found in our lives that comes from exalting God and glorifying Christ. That's the greatest source of joy. And the kind of joy is not dependent on life circumstances. You can find momentary happiness in all kinds of ways and in all kinds of places. But true, lasting joy can only be found in one source. And it doesn't come from getting your way or having your preferences always met. It doesn't come from having all your dreams come true. It doesn't even come from success or health or wealth in this life. Paul says in Philippians 3, 7, But whatever gain I had, I counted it all as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. You know, true, lasting joy comes from exalting Christ and then glorifying God, living a life that makes much of Jesus. A Christian who is always irritable and contentious and complaining and abrasive is a walking contradiction. That kind of person doesn't exist in the New Testament. That kind of Christian is it does not exist in the Bible. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that we won't all have our bad days when we wake up on the wrong side of the bed or or really struggle with sincere sorrow or depression at times. But if someone's life is marked by irritability and complaining and contention all the time, then something is off. That doesn't sound like someone who is focused on the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus as Lord. And so if you find yourself miserable, if you find yourself unhappy and ungrateful constantly, If you find yourself weighed down by the pain of loss and heartache and you can't move forward, if you find yourself angry and frustrated with where you're at in life, then maybe it's because you're trying to find joy in places or people or things that can't give you that joy. The only source of true joy is God, and that's found in glorifying Him. Psalm 1611 says, In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. You know, John the Baptist fully understood this, and he lived it out, and this is the last words of his recorded in the gospel of John. You know, he's such a fascinating person, and such an incredible witness to Christ, and there's so very little information about him, and I wish there was more, but that's kind of the point. It's not about John. It's about Jesus. He must increase, but I must decrease. And then starting in verse 31, we have the reason why Jesus must increase. Verse 30 finishes the words of John the Baptist. And here in verse 31, this is actually the author, John. He picks back up and and expounds on the words of the Baptist. He says, he who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from above is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard. Yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. There are three reasons why Jesus must increase. First, he is above all. He is the Word who was with God and is God. He is not bound by our limitations. He does not grow tired. He does not have mood swings. He does not change his mind. He is perfect and righteous and holy. He is the radiance of the one true God. He is above all. So, why would we try to lift up any other name but the name of Jesus? Second, he's been given the Spirit without measure. In the Old Testament, God would anoint people with the Spirit for specific occasions, for specific amounts of time, but it was never a permanent thing. But Jesus was given the Spirit without measure. This was a new thing, meaning he had the full measure, the fullness of the Spirit of God. And today as believers, post-resurrection and post-Pentecost, we also are given the Spirit without measure. And then the third reason is that He must increase is because all things have been given into his hand. The father loves the son and has given all things into his hand. Just read the book of Revelation sometime. There's lots of confusing things in there that will leave you asking tons of questions. But one theme that shines through all of it is the fact that all majesty, all sovereignty, all authority belongs to the lamb who was slain for the sins of the world. Paul puts it perfectly in Colossians 1.15. He says, He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is above all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything... He might have preeminence, that he might be preeminent. It's all about Jesus. He must increase. And to cap off chapter 3, John finishes in verse 36 Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. You know, from beginning. To end, this whole chapter is focused on salvation in Jesus. It begins with Jesus introducing the new birth, this idea of being born again by regeneration of the Spirit to new life. And that life, according to verse 16, was found in believing in the only Son of God. That's where eternal life can only be found. And notice here, he says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. And you would expect him to follow that up with saying, he who does not believe in the Son shall not see life. But instead, he says, whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. And that's interesting. Instead of repeating the word belief like you'd expect him to, John pairs belief with obedience. You can't separate belief from obedience. To say you believe in Jesus but don't obey your command, his commands means you're a liar. John makes that very clear in in his letter of 1 John. He says that repeatedly. To say you love God but you don't obey him means you're a liar. James would say that that kind of religion is, is dead and worthless. That's because Jesus says you'll be known by your fruit. An apple tree doesn't bear oranges. A lemon tree doesn't bear bananas. A pear tree doesn't bear grapes. The fruit shows what kind of tree it truly is. And so our lives The words we say, the attitude we display, the actions we take reveal our belief or unbelief in Jesus. And so the question is, what is your life revealing? What fruit are you bearing? Are you living a life that's congruent with the gospel? You know, when Jesus confronted the Pharisees, he quoted a verse from Isaiah towards them, saying, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Would Jesus say the same thing about you? And I can guarantee that if your life doesn't match your belief, then you're not experiencing true joy either. The times in my life when I am most miserable have nothing to do with other people. They have everything to do with God. The times in my life when I'm most miserable are the times when I know that my life is out of step with the gospel. When I'm, devo- when I'm not devoting myself to God's word and to prayer like I know I should be. When I'm letting fleshly desires take priority over godly desires. And if you walked with God for any considerable amount of time, you know this to be true in your own life. That we find the most, the most joy and satisfaction when our life is walking in step with the gospel. True joy and peace and fulfillment are found in obedience and faith in Christ. And my greatest hope for us as a church has nothing to do with attendance numbers or the size of our building or the amount of money we have in the bank. Though in God's providence, he may choose to bless us in those areas. My hope is not in those things. My greatest hope and passion for us as a church is that we'd be a people that are continually growing in our faith and belief in Jesus Christ. And that from that, we're pursuing a life that is matching that belief and in holiness and finding in it true joy and fulfillment. And when we do that, we'll be able to say those same words as John the Baptist, my joy is now complete, that we have accomplished our mission that God has given us. Would you pray with me?